it's recording now but it's not live Nick it's not live so um yeah it's really weird it's um I you know we met that one time like you said the panda and um Sean Flanagan our mutual friend who mm. I love dearly my brother from another mother um he was hang, hang um handing out all this biltong so I couldn't refuse um <laughs> I didn't talk to you that much you you had this crowd of people flocked around you listening to every word you had to say and I know why you know I've I feel like I know you I've seen so many videos of you now and you're so eloquent you're so articulate and you just nail it you just you call it out for what it is you call it all the bullshit and all the problems and this kind of like really blunt sophisticated South African matter. <laughs> I was like, I need to get him on my show. <laughs> so it's good to be here. Yeah, I don't want to go through the past, and people can look up though on the website. On my website, will be links to Pandata and everything. But you know, you've been one of the 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 warriors right earlier on. You know, I'm late to the party. A lot of people, even to this day, are like, "Who's this Doc Malik guy?" You know, I'm. <laughs> I admit, I'm late to the party. But you weren't, and I don't want to go into that too much unless you want to. I want to hear what you have to say now. What what do you want to say about the world that we're in, this clown world? Well, it's it's very interesting that you raised that question about being early to the party because for the first time, I guess, in um, the entire three and a half years or whatever it's been, um, I have begun thinking about that a bit because I've been looking at sort of some some questions which now come down to a fairly difficult point where where you need to answer to complex problems and so on. And it struck me the other day that it would be a good idea to um, see if we couldn't get a conversation going among the people who are there calling this out in February and March and April of 2020. And, um, just, just to see whether whatever whatever qualities or or features of personality those people had that enabled them to perceive that we were dealing with a scam back then um, might just also be the qualities that help us to wrestle with some of these complex problems. And so I'm intending actually to first of all remind myself who all those people were because it's, with the passing of time you get a bit confused. You know, who who was it when I first crept onto Twitter with zero followers? Um, <laughs> who was it who who I found? And and it's been quite an interesting exercise. I asked my Twitter followers to help me, and 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 in the process was reminded of a whole lot of people that I'd sort of forgotten about. So so that's a little bit of an initiative um, that that's underway right now, because I find that we're now at at some complex things where. Politics and sociology and personality and crime intersect with science and and medicine, um, and that's challenging. It's funny you should say that because I I keep saying to everybody everything's linked. You know everything that we see today is linked. And although up here in my banner it says Doc Malik Honest Health, here we are talking about things not hundred percent directly related to health, but ultimately politics affects health, policy affects health. Economics, material wealth and income, sure. um, living standards affects your health. Everything affects your health. And everything we see to get in the world today, I think, is linked. And there's a multitude, there's an epidemic of scams going on. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um, 
you know, it, the first time I started feeling comfortable voicing the opinion because you, know, you have to be so careful what you said in 2020. Still do. Yeah. It was, I think it was October 2020. I wrote an article called uh, 20 Lies. Oh. And I just called it out from top to bottom. You know, I just said it's all, it's all nonsense. You know, asymptomatic transmission, the masks, the lockdown efficacy, um, and listed out 20 different things that were just completely false. About and you're this. not even a doctor. And you had the confidence to say, this is all BS. Well, I, I guess it was because from early, fairly early on, I realized that it wasn't a medical problem we were dealing with. And mm. I've, I've always found it rather strange that to this day, people in the dissident movement organize conferences and invite only doctors. Yeah. I, I, would, I, I would organize uh, conferences and invite political scientists, you know, because this is not a medical problem. And, and it's part, it's almost feeding the narrative Amen. to keep on <clears throat> obsessing around the epidemiology and the clinical properties of this or that and the next thing or the spikeopathy or the ivermectin and so on. This is just not where we should be having our conversation. Uh, and, and, you know, when I walked into the room here with you, 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 you correctly started talking about um, central bankers. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, they're, definitely. They're part of the problem. And it's one aspect of this thing that needs to be understood and explored. I mean, and, and not just the central bankers, the Bretton Woods organizations had their hand in this and, and a, it's a big and heavy hand. Um, so the, the money world definitely is, is, is part of the story that we need to be discussing. Absolutely. Because um, I don't know if you, you don't, you don't know my views on things because I'm just a little minnow compared not- <laughs> to you. But basically my views are, I don't really care virus, no virus. I don't care lab or not all i know is whatever it was it wasn't a lethal pandemic i don't think you can even have a lethal pandemic because if it's a virus that's deadly it's going to burn up if it's not deadly and transmit everywhere well it's not a deadly pandemic so there's no such thing as a pandemic I, so there's I whole, agree with you pandemic is a nonsense construct it's a nonsense construct. it's an industry okay it's just a fake false scam industry that's been created so that's one of my opinions yeah. my friend yeah i'm filling Agreed. you in so where i am on things so that's one of my opinions and one of my opinions as well then don't don't talk about early treatment and this yeah. and that you know there's a there's an organization that has this thing called battle of ideas and i'll tell you one thing there's no there's no battle for ideas what they do is they construct this narrow frame in which you can have this ferocious ferocious discussion but they, they miss out the arguments here and the arguments there. Yeah, the Overton window stuff. So they have a very compressed Overton window. Yeah. Uh, the permitted, um, the, the gated institutional narrative, you're allowed to talk within those bounds. Absolutely. So it gives you this impression that you've got this amazing discussion and free speech. It's all bollocks. Correct. And, and, and to me, I don't care if it's controlled opposition or not, but really it's bikini opposition. It's not what is revealed it's what's concealed and it's the stuff that they won't talk about so i don't care about early treatment and oh we should have done this and we oh we should have done this and you know and well, having what we should do next time and yeah what should no, we no, do? no 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 there is no next time get this right you know <laughs> bingo thank you oh you know next time the p- pandemic no don't mention pandemic you're you're basically yeah. legitimizing it or oh a leaked lab Oh, you know, we shouldn't have these labs. And no, the whole thing is BS. Don't yeah. give it um, legiti- legitimacy. Yes. We, so we've got to recover language. And, and that includes reverting to the conventional understanding of terms. What is a vaccine? What is a pandemic? 
And it also includes stopping to use these words that have been kind of injected as constructs that are nonsense words. Um, my favorite example of that is left and right in politics. <laughs> I think that's a nonsense construct. You know, I say to people, no, let's, let's be clear on what we're talking about. Are you in favor of liberal values or are you authoritarian? Answer that question first. Yeah. And what do you believe with respect to the desirable pace of change, which defines you as a conservative or a revolutionary? Yeah. So I'll have those two dichotomies. That'll very clearly, you know, lead me to an understanding of how you think about the world. And I happen to be a conservative liberal. I'm in favor of human agency and civil liberties and human rights and um, freedom. And I'm a conservative. I believe that it's very foolish to make rapid changes to complex systems. Well, I, I'll go along with that. I'll also say let's add in individualism versus collectivism. Yes, that's, that's, that's also part of the, the sort of the liberal construct because collectivism has to be expressed through some form of authoritarian construct. And so if you're a collectivist, you, you're, you're necessarily also an authoritarian. But you know what's really wor worrying is that there's a lot of people who identify themselves as liberals and they're anything yes. but. That's why you have to call them out. You have to, you have to recover the meaning of the term. This is why, yeah. like, also a man is a man and a, man a woman is a, is a woman. A man is a man. And we must stop talking about whether people can identify as X and, and rem remind people that nobody on this earth has the power to know what it is like to be something they are not. And that's the first assumption underlying the whole trans nonsense. The moment somebody gets up and says, I identify as a woman, well, if they're a man, they've already made the outrageous step of saying that they know what it is like to be a woman. That's and, a quite that's sexist a, thing. It's false. It's sexist. It's, and it's nonsense. The person's got cognitive derangement. It's not an identity problem. It's a derangement problem. It's a mental health problem. It's a mental health problem. So the funny thing is, just stating that obvious gets you into trouble now. You know, if I was yeah. a kid back in the 1980s in my class and I said, Miss, a man is a man and a girl is a girl. No problem. She'd be like, yeah, well done. Yeah. I, I, you know, you're staying the goddamn bloody obvious. Do you expect a prize for that? Now, if you say it, it's like, <gasps> shock horror. Yeah. You know, yeah, and yeah. you're either applauded or vilified. How have we got here? And I think all of this is about inversion of truth, changing of the words and the meanings of things. And it's a deliberate thing, keeping the population confused, not really knowing, not having a solid foundation on which to, 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 to think. Because yeah. if you change the words and muddy the waters, how can you have a solid construct in your head and mind? How can you formulate ideas? Because ideas come from words. Yeah. You know, philosophically, I'm, I'm what's called a realist. I believe that um, the, the, the chief moral virtue is correspondence with reality. And the reason realists say something like that is because they also believe in moral realism, that you know, moral systems are complex and we, none of us are possessed of perfect information and more perfect knowledge. So we don't know what is necessarily right or wrong in every given situation. But there is a, we, a moral realist believes that there is a right or wrong behind that, you know, in, in the same way that there is a physical reality to the universe, you know. So as a realist, you say um, what, you, what you should be aiming to do mm. is to correspond with reality, including moral reality. And that notion of having an obligation 
to correspond with reality is has gone out the window. People do not feel that, that there's that there is a, an underlying truth that we all should be striving towards. They, they identify something called a personal truth. My, you know, it's also it's also fantastically narcissistic and and immature. Yes. Yes. But that's that's the prevailing sentiment of our times. Because people often say to me, like, but how do you know what the truth is? And it's like, hold on one sec, there's hard objective truth. Like, you know, it's dark now. That's the truth. (laughs) And this whole idea of my truth, my feelings, you know, it's not, that's not reality. And, you know, in the sense that, you know, okay, I, I respect your feelings and I respect how you feel about things, but feelings don't trump facts. And I think, now we've got to, got to a stage where feelings are now more important than facts in society, and that's worrying. Because how do you measure what's more important? Whose feelings are more important? Exactly. And it, the, the, the objection to that from you know, people of this ilk is that, but who's to say what the truth is? Yeah, and, I, I heard that. And I, and I say all the time, yeah, none of us are possessed of the, the truth. It's it's ridiculous to claim that you know everything there is to know and can explain everything in the world. But, and and we also know that all our, even our very best explanations of how things work are destined to be replaced by better ones. Yeah, that's science. We've had wonderful examples of that throughout history. You know, Newtonian mechanics came along and, uh, well, Newton brought it along. And for hundreds of years, bridges were built and didn't fall down. And, all sorts of machinery was developed using Newtonian mechanics and so on. So it worked. It was obviously true until Einstein came along, along and showed that it was entirely false. Now, it's still used because it was asymptotically in the right direction. In most settings, you're not going to go wrong pulling out your Newtonian mechanics and doing your calculations as if Einstein had never existed. But it's still has that explanation that Einstein, sorry, that Newton advanced was replaced by a better one. And that will happen to the Einstein's theories as well. Yeah. They will be replaced by better ones. And so that's true for all of us. We, we never, we approach the truth by degrees. We never quite attain it. But we can reject the bad ideas because we see in the world around us instances of disaster or bad outcomes. when certain explanations are tried and found wanting. And it's that kind of uh, engagement with reality that is so sorely missing. And yeah, the world, people get lost in this world of feelings. 100%. I'm just trying to think what made you kind of immune to this BS. I think you're in, correct me if I'm wrong, actuarial kind of science? Or I'm, I'm, I'm by, yeah, by qualification, um, not, not by occupation, I'm an actuary. Okay. Um, so that's all about statistics and hard data, objective yes, facts. Yes, but uh, if, you, if you want a profession, you know, the, the actuarial profession was not immune. A very high percentage of the actuaries went along with the craziness. So I don't think it's that. So then is it some kind of higher moral grounding? Is it some faith that drove you? I mean... I've always been thinking about this. What makes certain people more immune to the propaganda, the brainwashing, the hive mind than others? I've I've done a little bit of introspection on that. I I kind of, one of the things that I think might have been a factor is that as a a youngster, I moved around quite a lot. 
by the time I went to university, I'd been to 10 schools in uh, Interesting. Yeah, three different cities in South Africa and three different cities in America. Um, and I carried on being quite mobile. My career has taken me, you know, to, to, to many places. Um, I'm now settled and stable in Cape Town and, and have been for about eight years now. But that, that mobile childhood, what happens is you take a eight-year-old or 10-year-old and rip them out of a certain environment and deposit them into the, a new one. And they begin to notice immediately that things are done a little differently here. And things that they'd always assumed to be you know, just true or part of how things are done, mm. now all you suddenly see that they're, doing, they're done differently. And you sometimes ask the question, why do you do it that way? Mm. And you, you, with children, they will greet you uh, with a blank stare when you ask that question because they they've never seen it done any other way. They've, it's never occurred to them that there's a different way of doing yeah. it. And so I had this idea that you, you, you've sort of just got to be um, alive to the extent to which people are blind to their assumptions. Um, and I, it gave me a sort of innate skepticism when everybody says to me, this is a, this is the way it's done or this is how it should be done. I kind of like think, well, mm. how, how many times during the last three years I've been told this little line or, you know, a sentence that starts with the words, we know that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I thought I had it bad as a kid. So I moved four schools yeah, and I moved home. Yeah. Four or five times. And it was very disruptive yeah. and, and being, an, you know, from an, a working class background, an immigrant background, I never felt like I fit in anywhere. I always felt disjointed and I never felt ever part of a clique. A slight, a slight sense of alienation? Yeah. yeah. I always I, felt a little I, bit odd. I, I understand that. I understand that. I, I mean, it, it, it's played out for me so often in... Um, in the domain of uh, the you know conversation about the background events and culture, you know, so having travelled around and moved around, I long ago lost the connection with local sports. Anyway, yeah, and I appreciate the institution. I sort of see it performing a valuable social function. <laughs> I get it. Yeah, but try as I may, I cannot go through five more than five minutes of conversation about the local sports team or whatever without beginning to yawn. You know, and and I think people detect that. And then they look at you and, well, this guy's a little odd. <laughs> He's a bit strange. So, so I've gone through my whole life kind of with that vibe. Do you also feel like there's a lot of people who want to belong to a tribe and a clique, but you never felt the need? I didn't ever feel. I, I, gave, I just gave up. I was quite happy being different and liked being me. I didn't want to become part of something that I wasn't just to be popular or belong to a group. I was quite happy just being myself and being different and going my own path. Interesting question. I, I kind of have a, a, a very strong um, intellectual appreciation for community. Yes, of course. And I guess that overlaps with the concepts you're throwing around here, like tribe and uh, clique and team and so on. You know, and let's, let's, uh, I want to go to the positive word, community. Yes. I think one <laughs> of the thing that, things that has gone missing in this um, – increasingly centralized world is that notion of community and and we are social animals and we do best working in decentralized structures small groups small communities yeah. where you have not only the 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 ability to be a participant to have a meaningful existence and to participate purposefully in the activities of the community 
But if the going gets terrible and the community takes a bad turn, you can leave the community without incurring massive frictional costs. We've lost all of that. Yeah. And um, it's, a, it's a very big problem. So as much, but, but as much as I have this, uh, this intellectual appreciation for community, I've, I've often uh, found that I create a, a community around me of like, sort of like-minded um, rather than joining something. That's been my pattern through life. Yeah. I've definitely formed a community. I, I used to tell my kids, I don't have that many friends. Don't worry if you don't have very many friends. It's quality that matters, not quantity. And I could probably count on one hand my friends. Yeah. Did and you find that your friend group changed? Oh, it's, defi- it's definitely changed. Yeah, massively. It's, it's yeah. massively changed. People that I thought were my friends, I don't know if I can really trust them anymore, their judgment. I, I think they're good people, but I don't trust their judgments anymore. And now what I found is instead of having five friends, I've got too many. <laughs> I've got friends all over the world who I yeah. love, some of whom I've never met, but I know I could trust them with my life. You know, they're just on the same wavelength and their principles and their way they think. They're yeah. incorruptible. I had they're, a wonderful example of this. They have integrity. You know, arrived yeah. in London on Thursday morning. I hadn't made any evening plans. Um, just you know, we thought we might be a little tired and so on. And with an hour to go, uh, my girlfriend said, are we going to be we going to have company this evening? And I sort of thought, oh, well, that would be nice. And I shot, shot out a little note on Twitter thinking. I saw it. Yeah. And. <laughs> Somebody who I've never heard of before, who I've never spoken before, sp- spoken to before, put his hand up and said, "I'm coming into London." Where, you know, from quite far out, it was quite a lot of travel. You know? Amazing. And this this guy, Simon, was his name. I don't, yeah, never come across him. Sat down next to me at this dinner table. There, there were six of us. Um, yeah, my girlfriend and I, and four other people. Uh, three of whom were already, or two of whom were already known to me. Was and, Vanessa and there? Vanessa, Vanessa was there. Yeah. And, um, Mutual friend. Yeah, 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 she's great. And um, he, he just so, so impressed me, you know, with the, the depth and quality of the thinking, the, the mm. clear, that sense of somebody who engages the world and is looking for answers, has, is motivated by some level of curiosity. Yeah. It was, it was such a nice experience, you know. I sat comfortably next to somebody I'd never met at ever, and you went straight into meaningful conversation. It was there was zero for small talk or, you know, ice breaking or anything. We could just talk as if we'd known each other forever. You just said it that, you know what, meaningful conversation. You, you can only have a meaningful relationship with someone if you have a meaningful conversation. If, if your conversation is just, oh, what's the weather like? Oh, yeah. you know, how are you doing? Or, and without actually meaning like caring, how are you doing? This meaningful chit chat, which I've, just done away with. I, I don't have time for that anymore. Yeah. I'm not interested in that. One of the things I've really struggled with is, for example, close friends and family, where I cannot have those meaningful conversations anymore. And you think if I can't have this meaningful conversation, there's just no point. It's quite, it's quite difficult. I've, I've had some pretty painful experiences where you know I had a, a sort of a let's say an, there was a certain articulation of my social life, uh, certain friends and so on. And Within weeks of coming out in, uh, you know, my first public statements were in uh, late April of 2020. Um, I'd been working behind the scenes since you know, a couple of months before that. But um, when I started you know, shouting because I couldn't get anybody in my personal network to, to listen, um, <clears throat> I found that suddenly 
a lot of people just completely dried up, didn't want to know. Yeah. And I would sort of phone one or two just to check, you know, whether it wasn't something else that was wrong or whatever. And that would have a fairly cold uh, conversation. And then that was it. It just disappeared. And um, it was like that for, I would say, 80 or 90% of my um, social circles. Same. Um, and then what happened very quickly after that was there were these very interesting people entered my life, the network of skeptics and of uh, dissidents, dissidents around the world. Yeah. <laughs> and those people have been absolutely amazing. I now have the most spectacular holidays and trips and uh, um, you know visitors coming to Cape Town stay with me and I absolutely love it. When I arrive in London, I've had three dinners in a row. I'm kind of jaded because all of them turn out to be fairly late affairs, a liberal amount of wine. <laughs> and and I'm, so I'm tired, but every one of them has been spectacular. You know, just such interesting people and, and uh, so stimulating. I would have come, by the way. I saw that message, but I was in deepest, darkest Wales on a retreat learning about functional medicine. So I was like, damn it. I would have loved to have been there, but I knew people were going and I knew Vanessa was meeting you. So it was all good. Yeah. So yeah, it's fine. So has this, so I had a conversation with someone today about coming on my podcast. I really, I really respect them and like them. They've got some fantastic things to say, but the response was, I, I don't want to come on because I'm worried about what impact it'll have on my job, whether I'll get canceled. Yeah. And I respect that. And people have got families and mortgages like me, and I've just been cancelled. Um, you know, I was talking about that five weeks ago. So 75% of my practice, 80% of my practice has just gone out the window. And, I, and it's, it's stressful and it's difficult. But I wouldn't change anything for a second. And I feel like if enough people spoke up, they can't cancel us all. Yep. Well, that, that How do we get those people to speak up and say, you know what? Hell to the cancel. I'm not going to be quiet anymore. And I'm going to like, I'm going to speak up against this nonsense. Look, one of the uncomfortable realities is that uh, it, it's the case with a lot of people that they only speak up when, it, when things start becoming in, inconvenient to them. Mm. Um, I, I realized that early on that um, it was relatively easy to get vocal support from people in the restaurant trade, you know, because yes. um, their restaurants are all being closed down. Um, and, it's, I think, the case that as time goes by, more and more people are going to become inconvenienced and so that that will be a force in the right direction. But I also think that as the fear dissipates, more people start to see things clearly. Uh, as they start noticing that people around them have been injured by these gene therapy injections, um, I think they begin to ask questions. I think, and, and you know, we can see the signs of this. In South Africa, about 30% of the population was um, psychosed enough to have a, a, a couple of shots. And I should be fair, uh, so a lot of people didn't want them, but were forced to by their uh, employers. So they weren't all psychosed. But for the most part, we're talking about a bunch of psychosed people who took the shots. Okay, 70% saw through the bullshit, didn't take, it, didn't take a shot. But when it came to the first booster, uptake was less than 1%. Wow. People had already worked it out. And um, so now all of those people, the 99% of people who didn't take a booster, are on our side. A variety of factors prevent them from speaking out. Risk of cancel culture, um, embarrassment, and dissonance. They went along with a crazy story 
And now they must try and understand why. And the, the true answers to why they went along are sometimes extremely uncomfortable. Yes. I, I see this a lot with, uh, yeah, there's a certain category of dissidents who emerged only when the vaccines came around. And I ask them, you do re- I say to them, you, you do realize that, you know, under all plausible calculations, the, the, the years of life lost to lockdown is an order of magnitude higher than what's going to happen with the vaccine. You understand that? How did you miss the lockdown? Why did you not start screaming and shouting like you're screaming and shouting now when the lockdown came around? And that is, puts them in such an uncomfortable position. Can I put my hand up? Please do. So my friend, I'm one of those. Yeah. Late to the party. So I totally get it. And I apologize. So one of, the, one of the reasons why I get upset with some of my colleagues is I haven't ever apologized. I put my hands up and I say again, I'm so sorry I didn't speak up about the lockdowns. Yeah. I was just recovering from the Brexit campaign. I'd been hit financially yeah. for doing that big time. I was penalized for supporting the Brexit cause. All the doctors obviously were pro-European. They stopped referring patients to me. So big. Imagine that. Because of my political views, I was punished. Stupid. I wasn't referred patients anymore. And then I was just recovering from that battering and the psychological insults being called a racist and a white supremacist. All of this. This brown kid from Glasgow who's been called everything under the moon and the sun, standing at just in local towns here in Cheshire and whatever, in Beaconsfield, having people come up to me and go, you white supremacist. <laughs> this is hilarious you're just yeah, like I mean, uh, so I was in a bad place yeah. in the beginning of January 2020 I, was, I just wanted life to get back to normal and pick myself back up again and then suddenly I'm locked out in my hospitals I'm, I'm like this whole fear campaign and I fell for the whole lockdown I was like oh my god we need lockdown what's happening for two weeks I was an idiot but I was not in a good place to yeah. start off with within a week of lockdown I was like this is bullshit mm. denying people early access to treatment this I but I was stuck here in my garden. I wasn't allowed. Mm. Ah, I couldn't go to work. All my colleagues were like, oh, yeah, this is what's happening. You know, everything's getting cancelled. I didn't have a clue what was going on in the world. I was totally isolated. I wasn't on social media. So I was, yeah, I was dealing, dealing with my family and looking after my kids. Six months, I never earned a penny. It was very stressful. I wasn't having any furlough. So I think I was... I was not in a place to be campaigning because I was just really down. And But then I picked myself back up and I started speaking up. Yeah. Yeah. Mandates, vaccines, all that kind of stuff. I, I must say, I think that a lot of the people who did emerge later um, in response to vaccine mandates, I think if anything like this happened again, they'd spot it. They'd see it clearly, quickly, and they would speak out. I think they're people of that nature. But it's still worthwhile just to think about, like, you know, what are the, what are the personal attributes that led to missing something. I don't think it's worth talking about too much more um, because there's, there's so many interesting things for us to discuss and what's left of our hour. Yeah, let's yeah. go, let's go. Um, <clears throat> you know, the thing that I've been um, dwelling upon a lot recently is, is just how to uh, get people over the last line. You know, it, it, you kind of alluded to it earlier where, where you've got this phenomenon where people are insistent upon in, in, engaging with COVID as a medical phenomenon. I don't want to let go of that. Um, and to me, 
I think one of the last shoes to drop is going to be the true story behind the origins of the sequence and the COVID narrative. Because if you look at the, the timing of events in Jan that month, the one month, January 2020, I think if any, I challenge anybody, any commercial person, any scientist, whatever, to just look at a timeline of those events and then look me in the eye and tell me that that was anything other than bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just, just to recap, I, I love doing this because there's sort of, there are 10, 11 events that are compressed into that one month. And it, when you realize how close together those events were, you, you have to see that there was criminality, there was planning, there was, there was a staging happening. Um, look, just before you dive into that, I'm so glad you're saying that because I have had enough of the conversations with very intelligent people who go, oh, it's all just a coincidence. It was just a cock up. Emergent. It was just incompetence. Yeah. Politicians are stupid. They can't organize a piss up in a brewery. This is not some grand conspiracy. It's a cock up. You people see, need to get over this. Yeah. And, and the, what that reflects there is a tendency to over dichotomize. Um, because there will be elements of cock-up, there will be elements of emergence, and there will be elements of planning. And some of the planning, you know, we must just be careful. What do we mean by planning? Well, when you put doctors in medical school and teach them only about allopathic meds, only about cures at the end of a needle, well, that's part of the planning, because then you've got an army full of people ready to support the vaccine mandate. Amen. Okay. Absolutely. That's planning. Yeah. Uh, so, and it's not a conspiracy. It's done in the public eye. You're standing up in a lecture theater telling them that stuff. It's not conspiracy. So, so people tend to think, oh, well, the moment you mention plan, you, you're talking about like, um, you know, the, the blow felt in a volcano crater and yeah. with stroking a white cat and uh, evil, evil plotting, you know. It's not like that at all. But, I mean, let's just maybe zoom through that month quickly. Go, 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 okay. go. Um, the first thing that happens is we, we have – a very strange phenomenon in China, an eye doctor spots a, a case of supposedly atypical pneumonia. Now, that event is a very strange event to start with. There, there's lots of pneumonia all the time in China, okay? But he says, this one's very strange, okay? So that's 30th of December. It's just before the beginning of January. And then supposedly, we have the emergence of According to the World Health Organization already, on January the 5th, they're telling us that they have, they have identified 44 cases out of a population of 8 million people of atypical pneumonia of unknown etiology, unknown cause. So that's taken them five days from the time that the first doctor said he'd seen something strange. Then two days later, they had declared that a new SARS-like virus was the cause of these pneumonia cases. Two days after they decided that they'd identified 65 unusual cases. Just three days later, we have a situation where uh, the firm manufacturing the first PCR kits to test for this thing is already shipping them. So let's just recap. Unbelievable. We've gone from the identification of the first patient to the shipping of the first kits in 11 days. 
Okay. Um, and on that same day when they shipped the kids, kids. By the way, are the lights too bright? Do you want me to no, 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 it's all good. Okay. On, on, the, on the same day when they shipped the kids, the first gene sequences published on um, virological.org. Two days after that, the World Health Organization has already accepted Drosten's piece, Christian Drosten's PCR protocol as what they call the gold standard for testing for this new disease. And a few more gene sequences are published in that time. Just 12 days, nine, no, sorry, nine days after that, the, the famous Corman-Drosten protocol is published is submitted for review, and 27 hours later, it's peer-reviewed and published. What the hell? In a, mag- in a, in a journal that... That takes months. That, that Drosten is an editor of. Huh. <laughs> Two days after that, there's a Chinese study about the specific clinical symptoms that relate, supposedly relate to COVID, and that's published in the New England Journal of Medicine. We're still only 25 days from the beginning of this whole thing. And then five days after that, the first study is published also in the NEJM about asymptomatic transmission. So what have we done there? We've established in in the course, (laughs) in a compressed time frame of just 26 days, there's a new clinical manifestation. It's caused by this virus. This virus has the following sequence. Here's a test which is the gold standard in identifying that sequence and the, peer, the research identifying the primers that we're going to use all over the world has been submitted for peer review and published. And we've described the clinical features of this so-called new disease. I would submit to you that every single one of those steps was A, complete and utter bullshit, and B, premeditated. I'm with you, brother. <laughs> I'm with you, brother. There's no debate here. I'm not. I'm not arguing any of that. That's that's science has never moved so fast, and I can tell you right now, science doesn't move that fast. No, it's bullshit. It can take months to get a reliable sequence for a, a virus, and if you look at the circumstances around that, just that sequencing event. I mean, even if you take away the security agencies hanging around the people who are doing the research and having these you know, secretive meetings before, two days before the guy flies from Australia to China to, to, to sort of make sure they get to the right answer. You know, um, it, even if you take that stuff away, there's so much weird stuff going on. That first patient where they got... So a, who, who's driving all this? Look, I, I mean, I, I'm relatively comfortable saying that there's an in, incredible apparatus that is sort of an industry trying to make pandemics happen all the time. In two thought the 2009 case was the one that was where it was really exposed with swine flu. Yeah, Wolfgang Wardog. Wolfgang Wardog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not just him. There were there were a lot of people involved there. I mean, he he had a wonderful, a massive role, and he's a wonderful person. It was one of the first people I interviewed in 2020 to try and understand this kind of con. You know, it was interesting. That was like where my head went. I want to speak to the guy who got the last con. You know. Yeah. Probably. I think he was like my second or third interview after. A third interview after Sanatra Gupta and Jay Bhattacharya in the wake of, you know, yeah. when I suddenly heard three doctors yes. stand up and say the same thing we'd been saying. which Although was, you know. Jay needs to stop talking about the pandemic. Yeah, we'll get in there. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Listen, I have no fear. Jay will get to the right answer. He's, he's, he's got his head screwed on. Okay, good. Um, but, um, yeah, the, 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 sorry, I've kind of lost track a bit. Where were you? Uh, we were talking about the pandemic and war dog and, oh, war dog. You know, and, yeah, and yeah. had the swine flu and who's actually behind it, the industry, yes, yes. The, you know, the, the, the Gavis and everything. But yes. what I, like, the reason why I'm saying this is I'm really confused because you've got America talking about big bad China and, and, you know, pivoting to the East. They don't seem to be America's best friends, but it seems like China was almost colluding with America to do this shit. Oh, it's on the, it's, it's, so it gets really confusing. It's like, what the fuck is going on? On, on the surface, it looks like they're the, they're their worst enemies, but in reality, it looks like they're all working together. It's like one happy team. And, and, and we shouldn't be afraid, or, you know, it shouldn't be too difficult for us to understand that sometimes powerful people find that their interests are aligned that they have a shared objective in the world. So the example I give here is, okay, obviously you've got the pharmaceutical industry because they can make a boatload out of the, the injections okay? and the remdesivir if you're Gilead and any other number of you know, testing kits and whatever. There's just loads of money to be made from, yeah. from the fear and the hysteria and the scams and so on. Okay, so that, that, tick that box. We know why they're in the game. Yep. But then you've got your defense and intelligence agencies and they're, they're – just legions of people there who are employed under the under the banner of bioweaponry and um, pandemic preparedness because they 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 live in this kind of fantasy world where the next pandemic is just around the corner and gain of function is real and and they can engineer viruses and they can the enemies can infect our population but apparently not theirs with a, a new gain of function deadly virus now all of that stuff is absolute absolute you know cod swallow. It's, it's, there's no evidence. There's, I mean, vi- engineering viruses, do you have any idea how complex this is, this is? Even the serial passage things they're doing, they've got no chance of being successful in the real world. So this whole thing, the, the lab leak, the gain of function, all complete and utter hogwash. And you don't listen to people who are banging that drum all the time. It's, that's diversionary stuff. 100%. You've got to look at, keep focused on the hoax. Keep focused on the scam. Yeah. And the moment you start talking about that little spike protein or the furin cleavage site, you're lost. You, you, you've lost. The you're back in that window. You're not. You're back in the Overton window. Yeah. And you're not understanding the game. Yeah. You've got no chance of understanding the game if that's where your head is. So to me, the, the Department of Defense and the intelligence agencies, well, there's just tons of evidence for them assembling this machinery over time and wanting to use it. They talk about the need for, you know, testing warm base manufacturing so that they have this at any point in time, the capacity to roll out by the billion injections. So in other words, how do you get the manufacturing capacity there and waiting? And warm base means it's ready to go. For what? Fire it up. To, to poison the enemy? No, to- for vaccines. But why are they so much into vaccines? I still don't understand why the defense want to be in Okay. So, so the bullshit story they believe in is that there's a crazy scientist in a lab in, you name it, Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, wherever, who's, who's, who's working right now on concocting a deadly virus and they're going to release it in America. Okay. So we need to be ready with our vaccines to get the whole population. They actually believe the they bullshit? Do. They believe that stuff. I, I, honestly, I mean, I've spoken to loads of viro- virologists and they all drive me mad. They really believe. They oh, believe. my God. Yeah. Oh shit! Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and then, and then it, it justifies their job and their purpose and their research grants. 
Yeah. Because it's just like the climate people, you know, if you, if you subscribe to the narrative, you get a, you get research grants, you get, you can employ more people, you you get a position. And so it kind of fulfills this whole industry. You yes. just self feeding. And, and then you've got another part to all of this, which is the surveillance story. Yes. They're spending $30 billion a year on surveillance for viruses. And it, it, they will find them because, you know, the, Viruses are everywhere, and, and it's an incredibly diverse and, and volatile story. It's very, um, there's a lot of flux in the virus. So they're going to find novel variants, and it, what's novel about them is not that it's a new virus, this idea of salt, viral saltation, I call it, jumping out of a species or a lab or whatever. You know, that, that's, not a, that's not where new, vi- new viruses are just new detections from a swarm. And if there happens to be a nucleotide sequence that you haven't seen before, doesn't mean it was it's a it's a new. It it was maybe always there, or maybe it's a sequence from a, you know, another family or genus, and you had you'd seen it there but not here, and so on. Hundred percent. It's all nonsense. Do you know something like eight to nine percent of our DNA is viral? Yes. I, I, Do you know we have a viral biome? Yeah. Do you know when they talk about this SV forty? You know. You know gene. Yeah. Simeon vector, Simeon virus 40. It's because there was 39 before that. And there's another 40 after. There's, there's thousands and millions of viruses. You're yeah. going to find different variants. That, that makes me think of another dichotomy that really frustrates me is this idea of germ versus terrain theory. Why can't it be both? Yeah, it's so obvious, right? And, and, and what, what the statement I'm prepared to make is that the pathogenicity aspects are massively overblown and the terrain aspects are massively undercooked oh we, man it, health is what should well-being is what we should be focusing on and it's obvious obviously the case <clears throat> that we need to change diets and get people off this seed oil and carbohydrate infested nonsense that they're that they're shoving into their mouths yeah it's going to kill them yeah kill everybody with certainty eventually um so one of the things that really annoys me is this whole idea right now we've, we're drifting away a bit so we need to come back in a sec so remind me of that but, you know, we talk about, you know, mRNA platform now for this drug and that vaccine and we need gene therapy and, and, and the UK is leading in gene science and we're opening up this new factory and this new research centre. You know, genetic disease accounts for no more it's than nothing. 5% of all diseases. That's right. 95% plus plus of all diseases are lifestyle, lifestyle and environmental. Disease. So why the frack are we yeah. not talking about that? It's because there's no money in that. Money. There's money there's in having people. people. There's money in sick people. There's money in sick people and profiting from their misery and selling this bullshit gene therapy. Yeah. But, 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 um, Ahmed, we must go back to the. Yeah, let's go back. The, the, cause, <laughs> the cause and the, and the who's. Yes, yes, yes. We, we yes. covered defense contractors and defense and departments of defense. Yeah. And the pharma, the, the intelligence community. We've covered pharma. There's also, a, let's call it an ideological set of people who um, we can describe as Malthusians. They believe their, their belief structure is that the world has finite resources oh, God, yeah. and that as the population grows, those resources are going to be depleted. Now, it's also a stupid perspective, and I, I, I use that word with, with intending to use the full force of the word stupid because if, if there's nothing clearer to you after the last 300 years than that humans are, have the capacity to solve problems and 
establish entirely new types of resource and make the resources go further and that that process is indefinite. We're not, that we're not going to run out, we're not going to get to the end of the universe oh, and no, but listen, there's run peak out of oil. atoms. There's peak oil. We're peak running oil. out. Yeah, peak oil. You know, that it's, it's this idea that we're going to run out of photons, something like that. How does this work? You know, that there are not enough atoms around. Um, it's just a basically flawed premise. But it's corrupted every level of society yeah. to the point where good people I know, family members and friends, church going, stand next to me and go, there's too many people. The problem, Ahmed, is there's too many people in this world. And I turned around to one of these people and said, that's the most ungodly thing you could say. Of course. There's enough for, uh, for this planet to sustain billions more. Yeah. This, this, our planet, this little spaceship that's traveling through the universe is, is amazing. It's a yeah. miracle. Yeah. And it can sustain us. And there is enough. And this scarcity. And, but why, we aren't even limited to that. Absolutely. And this scarcity idea is fundamentally not just flawed, but idiotic. And I use the full force of that word. Good. And pathological. Now, now let's connect that Malthusian idea mm. to the whole story we're seeing now, because there's another alignment. If you go back to the 1970s, you see the Club of Rome and the Collegium Internationale and Rockefeller Foundation. And Careful, you're getting conspiratorial here. All these organizations which exist and which publish papers. So, well, again, not in secret, so not a conspiracy. It's a reality. You pick up their documents and you can read them, and it's not a conspiracy. Okay? Can we agree that? Yeah. Okay? So the documents are there, and they speak of the need to drive down population. And the way they say we're going to need to be able to control people, they identify that as a priority, and they say that a good way to control them is to first make them scared so that they ask for the control. And they, in the in 1970s, the two ideas that they had was you can, you're going to have to use invisible threats because you can't claim um, a visible threat that, that people don't see. So you have to use invisible f threats. Yeah, you okay. can't threaten them with something that yeah. doesn't exist. And what did they suggest? <clears throat> uh, deadly pathogens. Tell people that there's a deadly disease. And climate. But you know what type of climate? Wasn't it? Cooling. Cooling, yeah. Global cooling. <laughs> <laughs> the only problem was, around about 1960, unbeknown to them, the average global temperature had started rising <laughs> in an event completely disconnected from the Industrial Revolution. Or anything. That's also another scam. But from 1960 on, it had actually been warming. So their idea of scaring everybody with global cooling faced a, a snag. <laughs> so, so they switched to global warming. It's as simple as that. And, and these two, you can see this in these Club of Rome documents where they're just saying, look, yeah, we need to scare everybody. What can we do? Because we, the way they said it is we can influence people into, um, into taking contraceptives and having fewer children. We can do that. We can do that. But, you know, it doesn't really work that well. So you've got to scare them too. You know, that, that's, that's literally the two alternatives. So break it down. Way. So what is the scaring actually doing? How are they controlling the population by scaring well, them? Imagine I'm really stupid. I'm just a dumb orthopod. So what do you mean by that? Okay, so if you scare people, what yep. do they do? They turn around looking for a savior. Government, do something. Yes. It's the recipe for centralization and control. That's what you do. You create a bogeyman, and then people will turn around afraid, and they'll beg you. They will give up as many of their rights as you ask them to in order to get protection from the deadly foe. Do you know, people like Benjamin Franklin have been talking about this 200 years ago. Sure. It's nothing not changes. Nothing new under the sun. Nothing new, mate. 
And so what you've got there is this, this alliance of powerful people who are obsessed with these ideas of uh, finite resources. This word sustainable, you see it everywhere, right? Dude, I, you know, I was talking about that the other day. Yeah. What the frack does that even mean? It's the Malthusian proposition that in drag. pisses me off. Yeah. <laughs> Can you just say that one more time? What is it? Sustainability is the Malthusian proposition in drag. I need to make a clip of that. <laughs> Dude, I used to watch this program called Great British Menu here on BBC, and I really enjoyed it. These chefs come and cook, and then, the, you know, the competition. But this year, it really pissed me off. Nick, yep. don't, don't worry, I'm keeping an eye on the time. Yep. But this year, I'm going to get you back during time. Don't worry, you're going to the <laughs> Philharmonic Orchestra or whatever. So basically, they, they started a starter dish now. They insist it has to be vegan for sustainable reasons. What the frack? What's that? What yeah. the? Yeah. What is yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and that linked to the, the taking meat out of diets and uh, because cows burp and create methane and climate change. And, you know, the, the, the number of just completely absurd propositions that get strung together in this this disconnected from reality world, right? I mean, it, so if you open your eyes, you just see them all over the place, don't you? So one of the reasons why I think they're pushing the whole trans agenda is if people are non-binary, if you have s- surgery and you've no longer got sexual function, you don't, by the yeah. way, you can't procreate. Well, it, it fits into so many streams of the narrative because yes obviously that's one thing by the way just one thing cutting out a person's sexual organs is a pretty good way of making sure that their their fertility goes down yeah that'll work patience for life but it also what it also does is if you look back in time at centralizers at people who are trying to exert control over populations what they all become obsessed with breaking down the nuclear family hundred percent and that's the, the trans movement is very successful at doing that. Also, this erasure of women. You know, it just I'm, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when there was this thing called women's rights and feminism. Yeah. Now we've swept, switched from that, where that was the most important thing, where you couldn't say as a man there was a whole category of things you weren't allowed to comment on because those were women's things. Yeah. Now we've switched from that world to a world where women are just being crossed out. Right. Yeah. What's that all about? Yeah. So, and, and, Think about it. If you're trying to erase the nuclear family, this, that's one of the things you will do. So you still saw it in China and in Russia. They got the genders to wear the same clothing. All gave them those overalls. Yes. It's, it's erasure. Yes. Nothing new. 100%. Because even in the Soviet times, that's what they did. They wanted to get rid of the, the nuclear family because yeah. they knew that was the biggest obstacle between the state and taking freedoms. If you, if you as a nuclear family defend your children, your family, you know, that's, that's an obstacle yeah. to complete totalitarianism. But if the family no longer exists and the state becomes your family, bingo. Yeah. yeah. And a related topic, which is equally disturbing for me, is the, you know, one of the things is if you're trying to, um, you know, invoke a, a kind of control-oriented state, ro- the rollout of a surveillance security state type of apparatus. The one population you're really worried about is angry young men. Yeah. They lead revolutions. Yeah. So how do you neuter the angry, angry young men? Well, you send them to school where they, for 12 years they're told that about toxic masculinity. And they're told that, you know, a man is whatever we, you know, you want it to be. Um, and we take away all of the elements of masculinity and, and we start you know, calling them bad names. 
Yeah, it's all white men's yeah. fault. Everything's the fault of the white straight man. They're basically emasculating young men. Yeah. That's also, you see, now these, these various currents of thought are all relevant in the COVID phenomenon. This is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. This is why I'm trying to link everything together. And a lot Mas of people are not. Yeah. And I think it <laughs> is fundamentally yeah. all important. Yeah. You need to call out the bullshit because yeah. if you just pick one thing in isolation, it's back to that Overton window. Yeah. And that's why my social media has always been about every, all of these topics, climate scam, the, the trans issues, the COVID scams, the vaccine scams, everything I think is linked. It's about distorting reality. Yeah. Now, now, where it becomes difficult is to try and understand how much is purposeful and how much is just convenient. So let's look at the vaccines, for example. What do we know about the vaccines for sure? We know that the, 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 the lipid nanoparticles bombard the reproductive organs, yeah. the ovaries and the testes. Yeah. Okay? We know that women experience, loads of women experience un, unprecedented menstrual bleeding after taking the vaccines. We know that they're associated with the drop in fertility. We know all these things, and the products aren't being taken off the market. I would put it to you that that might be because a high percentage of the people with the power to take the products off the market do not think that infertility is such a bad thing. Agreed. And I that's agree. a terrifying thought. It is a terrifying thought, because if what else are we here on this planet for other than to procreate? Well, I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't put that as our purpose. It might be. It, I know, but it's, it's important. Kind of, imagine we can. Yeah. Imagine tomorrow there, there are no more children. Yeah, hundred percent. Terrible world. Terrible. World. That's the end of humanity. Yeah. Well, it, it, here's another link. What did we do? We had a disease where it's almost impossible for children to die from it. It's very difficult for them to spread it because they're too small. They haven't got enough ACE2 receptors, etc., etc., etc. I'm speaking within the confines now of the medical. Uh, you know, the conventional interpretation of COVID. So children are not at risk and they're, and they're not efficient spreaders. Okay. That's all. We can arrive at that very quickly within weeks of the, the, the so-called outbreak. Okay? But what do we do? We put them in masks. We take them out of school. This, this, uh, and on the pretext that it results in a marginal improvement in the safety of some older people. That is an inversion of conventional morality. It's an inversion of how nuclear families behave. Where I come from, you do not do that. When yeah. the ship sinks, the women and children get off first and the men go down. Yeah. That's, how you, that's what morality is about. You do not take the children and use them as the battering rams in a, in a war, which is what they were effectively doing. Yeah, I know. It's sick. It's wrong. Thank you. So it goes to the same, the same, it's all, you see how these things all drive in a philosophy of anti-humanism. Yes. In, in a philosophy that regards human beings as the scum on the surface of the pale blue dot. It's not transhumanism, it's anti-humanism. It's anti-humanism. Transhumanism is one flavor of it. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And where, where does all of the CBDC... Ukraine war, ah, yes. and now the Palestine-Israel conflict come into it. Because what's really making me sad is a lot of people who were awake to the COVID bullshit seem to have fallen for another scam. So certainly, when, when it came to the Ukraine, I was, it was easy for me to see that. that uh, what, you know, just, and let's be precise. <clears throat> what I mean by there was a scam there. The scam was that we were served up the story that one day 
Putin got out of bed and conducted an unprovoked attack on the Ukraine. But he's a nasty Hitler. Yeah, this is the story. Now, that story is complete. If anybody with a modicum of historical learning knows that that's not true, that there's an ancient conflict there. And, and in the context of any ancient conflict, to, to use the word unprovoked is just downright stupid. Okay? You, you, it's just useless. I, I say to people, if you see the word unprovoked in an article about a war, just stop reading the article because the person doesn't know what they're talking about. Yeah. So, at, so in that one, it was clear. That this, this one, I think we have to be a bit more careful with. It, yes, it is, again, an ancient conflict. Um, and, and yes, you can point to terrible things being done on both sides. But what's happening here is, I think, a little different from what went on in Ukraine. And I say that as a person who looks at the Israeli government and says, that government has done worse, thing, worse things to its own population than the Hamas guys have done to date. I like a country mile. They use them as lab rats. They use their own civilians as lab rats and killed. I agree. You know, many more than have been killed here. So I look at the Israeli government. This is not a... I can't think of a nice thing to say about them. They're the, the dirtiest bastards on the planet, okay? Now, I will, but I will not say that at all about Israel as a nation, the people. 100%. That, I'm not going to say that. That's, and so I'm not in, in the mode of denouncing. Don't take sides. So I think we're playing into their, the, the people at the top. It's back to the divide and rule. They, you know, this idea of you have to stand by Israel or stand by Palestine is wrong. I see two victims and I think the evil people are Hamas and the Israeli government who I think know exactly what's going on. I don't believe the narrative at all. I don't believe that this thing just hundreds of Hamas people just cross the border and suddenly the, the world's most sophisticated border with the most technology and the best army and drone and observation suddenly just went AWOL for a few hours. I don't believe that for a second. And when I heard 40 decapitated babies, not even one, just 40. I you know what I thought of? I thought of the Iraq war when, this, uh, when the Saddam Hussein soldiers were throwing out Kuwaiti babies that have incubated. And afterwards, there was no evidence of proof and it went quietly away. Yeah. And what does it justify? It justifies this massive war. It, it solidifies Netanyahu's position, who I think doesn't give a damn about his citizens because he made his country a petri dish, like you said. The, the only thing I would say that you know, I said there's something different about this, and here's the thing. I think there is a current, an ideology, that wills the destruction, the obliteration, the extirpation of the entire Jewish nation, the Israeli state. That's not, I think it's wrong to go and slap that on entire segments of the world's population, but there is a current within those segments that drives in that direction. I agree. And so you have to be careful. There are some, 100%. And I will say something else. Yeah. I have, very sadly, in our community, detected very strong currents of anti-Semitism. And I say that as a person who knows full well that the anti-Semitic, the anti-Semite uh, label is plastered around routinely to people who don't deserve it. We saw it with Bridget mm. uh, the other day, you know, and Norman Fenton stood up and, and, and defended him. So the word anti-Semite is weaponized and used incorrectly, inappropriately all the time. All the time. But the thing that I'm seeing looks pretty much like the real thing, and I don't like it one bit. So is this anti-Semitic? So I, I believe in the state of Israel. I believe in the state of Israel. But I can also be, argue that just like there are, I agree, 
there are elements out there that wish for Israel to disappear. There are also elements that wish for all the Palestinians to be ethnically cleansed and all of the occupied territories to be cleansed of Arabs and Palestinians and Christians and Muslims and to be a, a Zionist Israeli state, which fundamentally, currently, I believe, acts in all intents and purposes as an apartheid state. And as someone who is from South Africa, surely you should see that there are people living in Israel under occupied land and, and who are treated less than second-class citizens. I, I don't think the analogy is right uh, because, as far as I know, the, the substantial proportion of Arabs in Israel have uh, pretty much the same rights. They don't. Um, well, they can become judges. There. It's not, in South Africa, you, to use that analogy, you need to be precise because in South Africa, the apartheid was a very different thing. No, but what about the occupied yeah. territories? Yeah. They can't travel. Okay. There's no freedom can, of movement. Can we, can we go back to your question, though, because I think we're losing yeah, the yeah, root, yeah, the yeah, root yeah. of it. Your question was, um, how, you know, uh, the, the, I think the parallels between the, the, these other uh, served-up crises. Served-up. The served-up crisis. Problem, reaction, solution. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think that pattern of perma-crisis is very much part of this whole conf conflict. You want to keep the, maintain the fog of war confuse people, flood the zone of misinformation and keep the, the, the eye off. And division. The bigger problem that's going on, which is creeping centralization. Yeah, have, us, have us infighting yeah. and not see who the real mm. evil person is. If, if I could bring the problem down to one word. Yeah. Our enemy, to locate our enemy, the word is centralization. That's the enemy. Yep. And, and all of these things, I have this little heuristic that, which has been dubbed Hudson's Razor, which I, I, I get a little kick out of. But um, the, the, um, the, it goes, it's a simple thing that goes like this. Any problem served up as a global crisis, number one. Number two, admitting only global solutions. And number three, in the presence of suppression of dissent, is a scam. <laughs> I love it. It's as simple as that. One. Problem presented as global. Two, admitting global solutions only. Three, amid suppression of dissent. If you see those three, you don't need to go and study the thing or do a spreadsheet or look for the virus or look for the climate change or measure something or look at a model. Yeah. Just step back and know for absolute certain that it's a scam. And the first thing you will spot often is actually the censorship. When you're not allowed to say something, when you get cancelled for saying it, look up, look up. Is there a problem solution there yeah. sitting above that cancellation that's been established at a global level? And watch, most of the time you will find one. Things that are being held out, you can go and look on the list of the 17 or however many there are sustainable development goals. It will sit there as one of those problems. If you don't find it there, there's a handy little wheel that the World Economic Forum has put up with all sorts of problems that are, like, as far as I can tell, totally unrelated, but like real conspiracy theorists, they have little dots joining them and lines and dots joining them all up. Like they, it actually <laughs> looks like crazy person territory. You know? <laughs> and and on that wheel, there's a list of problems all expressed as being of global concern. So if you can look at that wheel and find the ones that you're not allowed to talk about, those are the things, those are the scams. I can't argue with that. I can't argue with that. 
We've got about 10, 15 minutes and then I'll wrap up and I'll drop you off at the station. Don't worry. I know, that's fine. Yeah. So basically, yeah. So talking to Seth Adin, talking to Ed Griffin, they said the exact same. Decentralization is the answer. We need to get away from big government, supranational organizations, all these two and three letter organizations back to communities, local communities. How is that going to happen though? We can't kick these people out of parliament. We can't vote them out. It doesn't matter what team you said right at the beginning, left, right, it's all yep. nonsense. How do we do this, Nick? What is our solution? Because one thing I was telling you at the beginning, remember, was my frustration. I'm in all these WhatsApp groups, these freedom movements, we're all chatting. No one's coming up with an answer. Okay, so I like to think about the problem from from the end of the solution. Okay. Centralizers ultimately fail. Certainty. Why? Because centralization extinguishes the means of error correction. So the systems go wrong, right? You can't, you can't be adopting one-size-fits-all solutions to things and expect anything other than calamity, okay? Why is that? It's fundamental to the nature of knowledge and our, and our ability to create new explanations and thereby to solve our problems that it proceeds in an evolutionary fashion. That's fundamental. So you need to have a diversity of attempts when you are trying to reckon with a problem. Very often, you know, problems are so complex, you can't even quite pin them down. And so the diversity of efforts that need to be undertaken to gradually chip away at the, comp at the complex structure is enormous. And that's why free markets result in economic growth, because you have thousands of companies out there all trying to solve the same broad set of problems and attempting it in different ways. And some of those problems, some of those companies succeed and others fail. It's an evolutionary survival of the fittest kind of approach. Now, this is true for knowledge growth generally. So when you centralize and when you invoke top-down, one-size-fits-all policy, you're actually killing knowledge growth. You're killing progress. You're killing the ability to solve problems. Innovation. So, so centralized systems inevitably fail. Every one of them in history fails. When somebody gets it right to invoke a centralization, it just collapses. Roman Empire, uh, Russia, the Soviet Union, every example in history. Okay? So it, it ultimately fails. Now, bad to me looks like we get trapped into a kind of surveillance state thing that gradually encroaches us in, upon us puts us into a digital prison, puts us into a geographical prison with 15-minute cities and digital passports and all sorts of constraints. Okay, bad. We gradually go there and gradually the system kind of shudders and shudders and shudders until eventually there's some kind of calamitous revolution that topples the entire structure. And, and now, that is bad because it goes through the maximum duration of pain, deprivation, and 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 poverty and so on. And if you don't think that those things will come around, you, you, you really are missing it. I mean, I like people to draw people's attention to the constrained energy budgets that are implied by net zero, the reduction in the average amount of energy that they expect people to undergo, um, the average amount of energy usage, I should say. That will result in mass starvation. You have a starvation on, on a scale that we have never seen before. because our ability to solve problems is fundamentally tied up with our ability to make transform transformations in the real world, which is tied to energy. 
So there is a path where unbelievable destruction can happen. And the question we have to ask is how do we bring the destruction of that centralized system sooner in time? And how do we get to it with the minimum damage being done? Because I tell you now, every one of these innovations they're making, whether you're looking at the, anything that's top-down, so the electric vehicles, the, the, the so-called renewable energy, all of these things are actually doing the opposite of what was intended. They're resulting in an increase in the costs of, or, the, or a decrease in the efficiency of energy production. Right? Yeah. And it's, it's because the calculations don't include all of the factors. They leave factors out. So like the, the, the resources used in uh, assembling a battery, the extract, from the extraction processes to the manufacturing processes to the distribution processes, look at the economics of it. It's making it prohibitively expensive to replace the battery in a car. People throw the cars away. I know. It's waste. So if you assume that the car only lasts for five years and factor in all those costs, you get to a very different answer than the one that says, oh, well, this will reduce emissions or CO2 consumption there's nothing or energy. There's nothing sustainable in an electric not. car. It's not. And, and, and this same with the wind, the wind farms because they don't provide baseload power. You need something else. So again, it comes down to, is it all incompetence? Because basically, if they had just built enough nuclear power stations 10 years ago, mm -hmm. 12 years ago, we'd have enough energy and not to worry. But they've deliberately want to reduce the amount of energy consumption. And the only way that can happen is if there's less people or we're impoverished and start starving. So, so my view would be that... Uh, a, a, centralized, a person with centralizing motifs drifting around in their head is at a level incompetent as a human being. Okay, so so I, I, I would go there and just say, look, you don't need to say too much more than that. But if people who dream of systems that they control and spreadsheets that they write and models that they create that, you know, when if only everybody would implement that model, the world would be such a nicer place. Those are, those are not smart people. They're incompetent people. They're incompetent humans, you know. So they may have a degree and be able to build a fancy spreadsheet and solve some differential equations that give you the COVID model or the climate model or whatever. But the fact that they're trying to do that makes them a special category of stupid. I, you, there's, there's this guy, David Krakow, who was, I think, I don't know if he still is, but he was the head of the Santa Fe Institute for many years. And he has a wonderful analysis. He says, look, you must always remember that there are different types of stupidity in the world. Uh. And, and he gave the example. He says, you know the problem of trying to solve a Rubik's Cube. You played with them as a kid. You know? yeah. He said, the smart approach is to try and work out the algorithms that you use to rotate pieces from this corner to that corner or to get the edge or the same color and all that. And you see kids learning those algorithms so to such an extent that they can do them in their sleep, you know can solve the one side this way, and then there's certain things you do to rotate this and that. But the algorithmic solution is um, the smart way of doing things. And then there are better and worse algorithms, ones that get you the solution in the fewest moves. And the algorithm sets that depend on the initial condition of the cube and so on. So there's lots of degrees of uh, quality of the explanations of how to solve a cube, um, you know, from very smart to... Uh, yeah, just above average sort of thing. Mm. 
Then there's the approach of saying, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll just attach the cube to a, a, a robot, and the robot will just randomly make moves. Okay? Now you can show mathematically that eventually the cube will be solved. You may need to make more moves than there are atoms in the observable universe in order to get the solution, but in principle, that random approach to solving a, a, a Rubik's cube will work. But it's stupid. Okay? <laughs> It's stupid. But it can get even worse. Another way of doing this is to get the kid to sit down and keep turning one side of the cube round and round and round. That will never result yeah. in a solution for the Rubik's Cube. So we've got to understand that there are degrees of stupidity. Now, in my mind, the people, the would-be centralizers, the builders of these models, the utilitarians, the people who are trying to create systems of governing the whole planet, the global, global government, the new world order, they're in the one-side-turning stupidity camp. They're trying to do something that is fundamentally incompatible with reality. That's how stupid these people are. <laughs> okay? And so we must always remember that. Yeah. They're... There, I, I, we, people make a lot of noise about the nudge units, the, yeah. the manipulation of behavioral, and, and that's real. That is going on. There are uh -huh. units of people who are intent upon doing it. But I keep on pointing out to people, you mustn't imagine that they're amazing at what they do and that these t techniques that they have are so brilliant. The reason they've been successful is there's been a staggering amount of money behind them. They've just been shouting all these messages loudly enough. So, yes, we can sit there with our team of psychologists and tease out the messages that they're trying to use, the ton of techniques that they're trying to use, the manipulations and so on. We can see that. But their efficacy is actually because of the sheer quantity of money that they've thrown at the problem. When we try to hire a, a public relations agency for um, and to help us get the word out, we found that we couldn't really find, we couldn't find one that wasn't already working for Pfizer. Oh, shit. Yeah. Almost every PR agency that we knocked on, whose door we knocked on was working for Pfizer or one of the other pharmaceutical firms. They couldn't work with us. That's how much money is thrown down the media channels and the Whoa. advertising channels in order to propel. And, and think about it. They bought Guardian, the BBC, mm. they bought uh, all the universities, they're funding Imperial, Oxford. Yeah. I mean, the amount of money that Bill and Gates, Melinda Foundation, bang, 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 they're sponsoring everything. Yeah, I mean, the, the university, my, my alma mater, is 22% funded by one health channel. Like, it's the money from Gates and Gavi and, and, uh, and, and even the US CDC and uh, and, that's, and that's not going to affect their policies and objectives? Never. <laughs> no. Well, if you're, an academic, if you're an academic in my old university and you say one, one bad thing, about the, the vaccine or about lockdown, that's the end of your career that you're out, you know, because their money all comes from there. It doesn't matter how good your research is and how much evidence you've got, you're out. So, I mean, that's, that's the reality is that an enormous amount of money is being spent here. Now, that, the, 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 the commanding of those resources will disappear quickly because the ideas that these people have are just so bad. Yeah. And that's a hope for us. Okay. So I've got two questions because we're running out yeah. of time. I need to get you back to the train station. So number one question is, for all the listeners out there, how do they defend themselves, protect themselves, their yeah. families, prepare themselves? 
Because I think, you know, I was speaking to Ed Dowd about this and he said, Ahmed, things are going to get a lot worse Correct. before they get yeah. better. Yeah. And I don't know how long it's going to take. But if you look at all these things that you gave example of Rome and Soviet Union, things got really bad. There was chaos. There was famine. There was death. So how do people protect themselves? Because right now, a lot of people are like, everything's fine. But it's back to that slow burning, you know, um, so slow boiling frog. People don't know they're in the pan and it's going to get hot. Yeah. So what do people do? So let's take it at a general point first. I, I say to people, there's a, you can get more independence in your life, but it comes at a cost. Okay. Uh -huh. so you may have the, the job at the cushy corporate and all that, and it's paying you a certain salary and affording you a certain lifestyle. But with your skills and abilities, whatever they are, there is a more independent version of that you out there. And it's be prepared, though, that you're going to have to sacrifice something in terms of normally income. Okay? Take that sacrifice now on the chin. Become more independent. Think of ways to, make, to reduce your dependence. If you feel that you're unable to speak out on some issue, if you feel that you do, that you do not have the freedom to express yourself and to act in the world, it's a sign that you very urgently need to address your independence. And you need to take, swallow hard, tighten the belt, and take the cut, whatever it, whatever it means you have to cut. Because you're enslaved. The cut's coming for you anyway. Yeah. With, if these guys get in control. And the only way we can we ever going to be pushed back on, on the Borg is if enough people assert their independence. I did it very mindfully about eight years ago. I walked out of the corporate world. I, I took a massive smack in NAV. I started my own firm. I was very careful in starting that firm to make sure that there was nobody who could stop me from saying what I wanted to say and doing what I wanted to do. I had a firm control within, within reason. Everybody ultimately can be thrown in jail or whatever. But yeah. But I, to that, that's why I was able to speak out. Many, many people share my views, in, for example, in, in my profession, in the actual profession, but they work for a big insurance company that gags them. They don't value their independence highly enough. That's the problem. And this comes back to yeah. decentralization, yeah. 100%. I left in a chance because I couldn't speak up. I, I yeah. thought by going private and working for myself, I would be able to speak up. And I've yeah. been censored and cancelled. But I still am now looking at ways... I can escape that. Yes. yes. And that, that's brilliant. That's exactly what's needed. You're, you, what you're doing is taking responsibility because it's true for every single person on this planet that their independence is their responsibility. That's the, you have, if you want to be part of this, if you want to push back and fight, guess what? You have to take responsibility and welcome the obligations that that places on you. And one of them is very much to assert, to do the hard yard thinking and take the hard actions, the tough decisions to put yourself in a position to fight. If you carry on working for the bank or the insurance company or whoever it is, you're not going to be in the fight. Taking the cozy bill, the salary, and yeah. just hoping yeah. the problem will not come yeah. to you. Yeah. Because today it's not you, but tomorrow it will be. You know, the frequent rejection, the frequent, <clears throat> but I'm so worried about my kids and the family. You know, the private schools these days cost so much money. So you really want your kids being 
think about it. Isn't it time to to call this charade? You want your kids to go there and learn all sorts of nonsense about transgenderism and uh, hypersexualization of children and uh, uh, crazy ideas about relativism and critical theory and uh, that's what they're filling their heads with. Functional education that doesn't give them any critical thinking capacity. How much are you losing if you if you if you take them out of one school and into another? Rather, I would rather make that kind of cut in my life than face the prospect of effectively being a slave. Because that's what you are. Make no mistake, you're a slave if you are unable to speak. 100%. What you've just said, Nick, has given me goosebumps. It's so powerful what you've just said. And it's, it's a fact. It's a reality. Most people are indebted unnecessarily. They go on yeah. the fancy holidays, take out the big credit cars and, you know, credit. Um, and and they, they should avoid that. Make themselves as immune as possible. Do not get indebted and enslaved to the system. And what you're describing is the problem is we need strong men and women to say, I'm not going to deal with this. But the problem right. is, like you said, in particular, I'd say more so men than women. Men have become weak. Men are soft. And we are in an era of soft, weak men, which is why we're in this problem today. You know, if you put yourself in a, in a future time, uh, somebody is asking you, but, but dad, why didn't you speak out? If, imagine what you're going to feel like if the answer is, yeah, you know, I wanted to go on a holiday to Ibiza. Yeah. Every year. Yeah. So there's a, there's a meme that I saw and I was like, that's, that's going to be me. Where this dad is sitting on a sofa next to a fireplace and, you know, someone like maybe one day my children would say, dad, you know what? You fought back. You know, you didn't care about being canceled and suspended. And the son is sitting there and he's got a little bubble, thought bubble and goes, my dad's a fracking legend. That's what I want. Yeah. I want my kids to say my dad was a fracking legend. Yeah. 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 You know? And it, it, let me tell you, the education that they're getting in watching you have this fight is worth anything that they're going to get at a school or university. That is worth so much. For a child, watching, watching courage exemplified, watching intelligence and critical thinking on display, watching engagement with the world on display, seeing reality respected, family respected, community respected, is such a powerful thing. And it's the exact opposite of what the crazy hour worker in a bank commuting back and forth, unable to say a word, just meet dinner parties where they discuss the sports matches and so on. That imagine what their children are seeing compared to what yours are, you know. So so it's it's one of the benefits, I believe, of that kind of independence is that you actually get to be an exemplar your own kids and for the kids of the community. It's fantastic. My last question, my friend. Dude, I love you so much. I wish I, I wish we had more time. Honestly, I could speak to you forever. I'm really glad you came. Thank you so much. It's lovely being here. <laughs> last question. You, you've reached a grand old age of 167. You've lived a great life. None of this processed food shit crap. Yeah. Keep the stress off. You've got a lot of love in your life. You've got this beautiful girlfriend. Anyway, now you've got children, grandchildren, everything around you. You're on your deathbed. You're going to meet your maker. Before you pass away, what advice, health or otherwise, would you give to those around you? Yeah, the, the answer that first comes to my mind is, is 
is around that, something around that independence idea that I've just been talking about. But there's, there is actually something greater than that. That was, remember to stay curious. That would be, I, I'm very clear about that. If I could give one gift to my children, it's curiosity. And, and I, I hate the idea of any person having a life that isn't filled with curiosity. So I would, I would put that out there as maybe the candidates. Can I think of any others that trump curiosity and that trump independence? Well, you know, there's something in there about the value of trying to correspond with reality. But I think that's just too broad and too hard to be understood. You know, you get, it kind of comes, I think of the term, you know, keep it real. <laughs> when I say that, I mean a certain thing, and it's not what, you know, what other people mean. When I say keep it real, I mean correspond with reality. Pay attention to what the world is telling you. You know, that's sort of keep it real it could be my slogan if it wasn't corrupted by, <laughs> by surfers or whatever, you know. But, um, or, um, <clears throat> Yeah, so I would go. I would go with the curiosity story. Um, no, I like that. Yeah, and children are curious. So yeah. in a way, don't forget what it's like to be a child. Yeah, you saw some of my kids. I can tell you, they're so goddamn curious, Nick. They have questions about That's everything. That's beautiful. So many questions, oh, and it, honestly, it puts you yeah. on the spot, and you go, "God damn it, that's a hard question." Yeah, and you have to answer them. Yeah. And and I think we kind of lose that as we get older. So, you yeah, know. you see, I haven't. I know. I, I have this. <laughs> I, I like. I I, I can't help myself. I I, feel, I often feel like a child. Like I, I'm sort of now, you know, getting into the last half of my commercial career. I'm a successful private equity transactor. People look up to me as a kind of, and I still feel like an absolute kid. Like I walk into the room, and I often feel like I'm the child there. I love it. You know, I, I'm the most experienced person in the in the room, and I feel like the child. I, I have that feeling. Like day in and day out. It's a, almost a permanent state of the world for me because I, I have the sense of wonder at the, at the world around me and excitement of, about problems. So even when things are bad, there's still the fascination of the problem you're trying to deal with. And I, like this thing now, I think we have terrible problems. We, the leadership of the world right now, the people in power, are bananas. <laughs> it's the worst bunch of ghouls and goons the world has ever seen. We are faced with the biggest problem ever faced by humanity, a truly global problem, an actual real one. It doesn't require a global solution, by the way. We want lots of different solutions. But that problem, even that serious problem where I'm really desperately worried about the future of my children, that problem is still fascinating for me. And I want my energy goes into it. And, and I'm not afraid mm. in that moment. I'm not afraid. I'm looking at the problem and saying, wow. That's fascinating. How do I understand this? What's, what's, a, what's the thought experiment to perform that would, might inspire me one day to come up with that light bulb moment that says, this is what we need to do, you know? And if you've got loads of people adopting that attitude, uh, remembering that knowledge creation is not a matter of sitting down and doing something logical and sequential. Knowledge creation is everywhere and always a creative and inspired thing. That's why we can't program it. We don't, have no clue. You can't make a computer create new knowledge. You can't write creativity into a computer. They can just statistically average the world as it is and do various types of calculations and deductions. And therefore, computers, we, can't, we don't know how to program computers to create knowledge. Only humans have this ability. And it's a kind of inspiration. You can think of it as a divine inspiration, 
or whatever, whatever rocks your boat. But it's a, a sort of inspiration, and you need to do those little, you know, like Einstein, imagine I was on the end of a beam of light or you know, a eureka moment where you jump in the bathroom and into the bathtub and the water goes up and you work out how to detect real gold, you know. Um, these, these, inspire, in these steps of inspiration, you can create the conditions where they become more likely. But it, what is, and, and the first of those is that sort of attitude towards uh, the unknown, the, the, the problem. If you see problems as opportunities, I mean, it's an old, tired sort of saying, then you're in, in the right place. I, so I use the word problem in quite a positive sense, solving our problems. It, it's like that's, in a, in a big way, the meaning of existence is to continually be able, putting yourself in a position to solve problems. Um, and I, I could do, a, we could do a whole afternoon of chatting about that sort of idea. Absolutely. I, I look at it as where there's adversity, there lies opportunity. And I had to remind myself of that, you know, that line that I had, because I've been through so much, Nick, and that's another podcast, so much I've been through. And for about three weeks after my suspension, I was really low and down. I got sick. I was depressed. I was like, oh God, how am I going to pay my bills? I've only got savings for a few months. I said, no, no, there are opportunities here. I will force myself to get out of this position of comfort that I've been in. I will be comfortable in the discomfort and I will make this work. I have fantastic listeners now. I've got something like 340 subscribers on my Substack. I'm going to make a merch store. I'm going to offer functional medicine consultations. I will look for sponsorships. I will look for something. Something will happen and I will be okay. And if it means I have to give up surgery, but it means I'm even more free. Yeah. I am even more independent. God damn it. Great. I'll be happy for that. And okay, you know what? It might mean that I carry on. You saw my car. I drove you in. It might mean that I just carry on in that crappy little car. I don't care. I would rather live in this small little cottage and be free than be indebted and meek. You know what's going to happen? <laughs> what's going to happen? The moment you start down that path, you're going to find yourself inventing other ways to do that. And you, be you become an entrepreneur. That's what happens. Because that, that action of gaining the independence and of um, starting to think in terms of, well, actually, I can be the master of my destiny is so generative and you will surprise yourself. You're going to come up with other ways that you haven't to date thought of before. That you, you, they would never have been on your radar. Those things are going to crop up. And, and they're going to become sources of fascination and curiosity and excitement in your life. And you will be drawn into them and you'll do them well. Do you know who you remind me of? No. <laughs> it's funny. We're going to go right to the beginning again. You remind me of Ed Griffin. <laughs> right. I mean it. So the reason why is because he's 92. He's got a spark in his eye. He yeah. told me off air how he's still like a kid. He's passionate. Yeah. He's not down. He yeah, knows yeah. he's written out all the crap that's going on and the cabal and how this has been going for centuries. But he's not down. He's not depressed about it. Yeah. He's a happy warrior. And he holds on to his childhood passion and, yeah. and objectiveness and being happy and being that warrior of light. And he talked to me and said, look, look, we're not going to convince everybody. He goes, look, there's, there's 1% of people who have that crusader gene who no matter what will fight for the truth. Because Amit yeah. is the truth. Yeah. And when you're forced to 
swallow a lie. You go, no, I will not. And you will resist and fight for the truth. And you'll be supported by about 3% of people who are thought leaders and inspirers. And behind that is another, you know, 11% or whatever, who will be your silent army. And then there'll be a 15% enemy. And in the middle, 70% who don't really know what they're doing. And he said, and he said to me, Ahmed, you have that 1% crusader gene. So I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you something, Nick Hudson, you have that 1% crusader gene. And I mean it. I like Mr. Griffin already. I tell you, and I like the, that he uses the phrase crusader gene because, um, I, I do think I, I mean, I've thought about that. I think society needs to evolve and it's something we should all just contemplate a little bit. To the point, it can't have the whole of society being crusader gene people. It'll be chaos. <laughs> Nobody would ever be able to organize a piss up in a brewery. It'll just everybody pulling in the, yep, going off and charging at windmills and so on. No. So I think we've kind of evolved. And I think even at a biological level as well as at a social level, we, we move towards a situation where there's a small number of mavericks or crusaders and a fairly large number of, let's call them the pejorative term is sheep. I don't really like it. But, you know, followers or norm, normative, uh, you know, normies or whatever, the, that, that that's, is probably a stable situation that you have to have because you need people. You can't have everybody running around and questioning everything all the time, you know. So, so we, that's also when you contemplate that, you realize, oh, okay, well, so this is also not an unusual situation that we're in a minority, nothing to be afraid of. It was always thus. You know, so that's the kind of idea that's important to, I think, hold in mind because then you realize, oh, well, whenever any other big problem has been moved, it's been moved by a couple of crusader warriors working against a, a slightly stupid or very stupid Borg. And one thing that drives me mad is people saying, but they're so clever. You know, they look at what they've done. They've been able to manipulate everybody. No, I think it's easy to manipulate. Don't give them credit. It's easy. Yeah. Yeah. If you've got enough, if you've been able to steal enough resources from the electorate that, you know, that voted you in, then, yeah, it's easy to do that. That is not particularly clever. And so, yeah, we just don't give them that much credit because that also makes it, you, you're then afraid to think of how you can beat them. Yeah, don't you be know? afraid. Yeah. So, so conquer the fear of independence, conquer the fear of taking responsibility, conquer the fear of shouldering obligation. And conquer the fear that of your enemy being geniuses, you know, <laughs> evil geniuses. It's just not the case. They're all they're all somewhat dumb. <laughs> I think it's a great place to end. Everyone, I really hope you enjoyed this. I've really looked forward to speaking to you, Nick. And um, you haven't failed to deliver. It was epic. I love you so much. And um, yeah, everybody listening, thank you so much. And just going back to some of the early stuff we were talking about, don't give in to hate. Don't give in to fear. I love everyone. I have no skin in the game. I'm not a Muslim anymore. I just believe in God and I love humanity. We love Israelis. We love Palestinians. We love Christians, Muslims, Jews, everybody. Don't let the bastards divide us because they're the enemy. Uh, Fine words. I I couldn't agree with you more. All right. Bye, everybody. Thank you so much.